If you're in conflict, that's okay, but we must be willing to compromise. You're listening to a sermon series titled Song of Solomon, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Well, today we are going to start with a very invasive question. And about halfway through the sermon, we're going to hit you with another invasive question. So just take a deep breath collectively. Here we go. One big invasive question. If you're in a relationship, you're in a marriage, I want you to raise your hand if this week you got into a fight. Just throw your hand up if this week you got into a fight. Let everyone know. You're looking at each other like, did we get in a fight? And the husband's raising his hand, the wife's not. I just created a fight at this point. Sorry about that. Uh, we're going to talk about conflict in marriages and in relationships today and, and how the gospel can help us work through uh, that conflict. But I want to start today with, there's a, there's a false notion that the um, healthy marriage or the healthy relationship equals the absence of conflict. And I just want to say that is an absolutely immature and unbiblical way of looking at your marriage or looking at your relationship. Some of us think, if I could just get to that point where we don't have a fight anymore, or I think there was a movie in the 70s that said, you know, uh, true love is never having to say, I'm sorry. That is a ridiculous notion, right? True love is, is being able to say, I'm sorry constantly. And so the premise today I want to begin with is that a true healthy relationship it does not mean the absence of conflict. It's the endurance through conflict. Amen? So I want to challenge us from this text in Song of Solomon today to be those who are not stressed out about conflict, but to give us some tools biblically on how to work through that conflict. Because as we come to Song of Solomon chapter 5, we've been studying these last four chapters of a song of songs, a romantic poetic love song between two star-crossed lovers who seem to have no problems, no qualms, no issues whatsoever. And now we come to chapter 5, and most commentators, most scholars agree that this is not a dream necessarily, but this is an actual real-life scenario where they actually have a falling out and a fight. And so we're going to look at this today. Now, um, to set this up, there are, some people believe, seven stages of marriage. Seven stages of marriage, and um, I want to put them on the screen uh, today so you can kind of see where we're going for the rest of our study in the Song of Solomon. But uh, we've already talked about passion. We don't need to talk about passion anymore, but that's kind of that beginning stage of marriage where uh, you and your spouse, um, everything's fresh and new and they're perfect. All right? They've never even, in fact, he sneezes and you kind of go, oh, that's cute. God bless you. And it's just cute when he sneezes. Well, then there's the realization stage. And the realization stage is kind of where that early passion begins to fade and the reality of day-to-day -day life sets in. He sneezes and you kind of go, ooh, um, God bless you. You should get tested for that. Um, then there's the rebellion stage. And the rebellion stage, of course, is where most infidelity seems to take place in marriage. This is where those individual interests begin to kind of reassert themselves. And you begin to find other things that uh, you do to entertain yourself to escape the ho-hum of the daily grind. He sneezes and you go, would you stop that and go seek medical help? You're done with it. 
Well, then there's the cooperation stage. Thankfully, many marriages turn the corner, and in the cooperation stage, your partnership outpaces the romance of your relationship. And you deal with shared responsibilities like the home, the kids, the finances, and you go, we're going to do this together. Uh, then you come to the fifth stage uh, periodically, which is called reunion. And that's where you say, we're going to recommit our lives to this. We're in this for the long haul. Uh, we're going to fight through the fight. Uh, and you mature together in these ideas about paternal caring and material gain. You're not in the, 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 the wealth achievement or wealth accumulation stage of your marriage. You're starting to kind of uh, get older uh, and things are slowing down. And then you come to the explosion. And the explosion is the, the part of marriage where you weren't expecting this, but a lot of intense changes begin to happen. You deal with the death of parents. You have a changing of careers. You have the kids move out of the house. And all of a sudden, things that you haven't been talking about for a long time start to bubble up to the surface. And you realize the person I'm looking across the table at is a different person. It's the explosion stage. And then there, of course, is the completion stage where you work through those differences you come to an agreement and you have a final and full realization of your love for one another. And what we're going to do as we continue this series, we only have three weeks left, including today in the Song of Solomon, is we're going to look at not passion anymore. We've done a lot of that, but we're going to look at those last six. So here's how we're going to break down today, next week, and the week after. We're going to look at realization and rebellion in chapter five and part of six. I'm going to encourage you to read the rest of chapter 6 on your own. We're not going to dive into it verse by verse here. Uh, but we will re-pick up the story in chapter 7 and look at cooperation and reunion. And then we'll finish the book out with kind of a legacy of love in uh, chapter 8 verses 5 through 14. So the message today is called when the honeymoon is over. When the honeymoon is over and a lot of us... Uh, as we read Song of Solomon, we see a picture of idealism. This is a couple who can do no wrong. And so there's an idealistic view of one another. And then, of course, we come to chapter 5, and there's a bit of a disagreement. And you could say realism has been injected into the relationship. Now, I would argue this morning that realism is greater than idealism. In other words, having an idealistic view of your spouse one day is going to be um, strongly interrupted. Uh, you're going to realize that person is not a, a perfect person. We you don't amen that. But you, you have married, if you're married today, and you're, and you're both Christians, you have married a flawed, sinful, fallen, depraved, broken individual. And you are sinful, fallen, depraved, and broken. And so what did you expect putting two broken, sinful needy people together. That person's not going to fulfill you to the ultimate degree. That person is not in your life to take all of your issues and to make all, all of your wildest dreams come true, to quote Napoleon Dynamite. Uh, you are with that person, and that person is only going to aggravate and draw out more of your flesh, not to help ease the flesh. Now, of course, there's moments we're in the spirit and they're in the flesh, and we can work through that. But uh, I want us to look at this text, and then I want us to jump over. We didn't do this first service, um, but I want us to jump over to the New Testament and see how uh, we can work through conflict. So uh, we are going to look at 
Song of Solomon chapter 5, starting in verse 2. Now, Dean just did a great job reading through this. It may have been a little bit hard to follow what's happening. So I want to set this up a little bit. You'll notice in verse 2 of chapter 5, the heading in the ESV says, The bride searches for her husband. Now, back in chapter, a little bit earlier, I think chapter 3, she had kind of had this, or two, she had this dream where she was going and looking for uh, her beloved. And this dream kind of comes true in a sense. Now that they're married, a lot of time has passed from chapter 5, verse 1 to chapter 5, verse 2. A lot of time has um, surpassed. And so now to set this up, she has essentially, a lot of commentators agree, she has essentially been waiting for her lover to come home from work. And so she has taken a shower. She has readied the room with spices and perfumes. She's set the mood and she's waiting with anticipation for him to come home. Problem is, he had to stay at work a little bit too long. He had to work late. And so that idealism of he's gonna come home right at five o'clock and he's gonna walk in the room and we're gonna look at each other and Dreamweaver is gonna be playing on the radio and we're gonna meet each other's eyes. He's gonna scoop me up and take me into the bed like the video uh, intro kind of shows. And so she has this picture of what it's gonna be like. He's gonna kiss me and, and then it's gonna be amazing and wonderful intimacy. Well, that idealism is broken by realism. The realistic view that he didn't come home on time. He had to work late. He has not arrived and she's starting to get tired. And so she's waiting and waiting and she falls asleep. So the realism of actual sleep and being dog tired has affected their intimacy. Can you believe that's actually in the Bible? And you thought that was only in your marriage. So um, that kind of sets up the story. Um, he comes to the door, knocks on the door, and she kind of throws some excuses out there. She's like, hey, I thought this was going to happen on my terms, and now I, I have to be inconvenienced by getting out of bed. I'm going to get my feet dirty. I'm going to get you know, it's too cold, I gotta put my robe on. And so my creature comforts have been violated and I don't necessarily wanna be intimate, but he wants to be intimate. And so I don't really know what to do. And so she finally gets up, opens the door, but he's gone. Uh, that kind of sets up what we're gonna read. Look at uh, chapter five, verse two. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. And here's what he's saying. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. So we can kind of poetically guess it's raining outside and he's knocking at the door, open the door. Uh, and she's kind of saying, why did you get home so late? And he's, uh, and why didn't you call me? And he says, because phones haven't been invented yet. <laughs> this is the Song of Solomon. Uh, and so um, he's saying, why didn't you open the door? Why did you lock me out? Uh, and so they're kind of having this back and forth, even though she is uh, excited to hear him knocking. Uh, notice her excuse in verse three. I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? In other words, I, I don't want to get dressed. This is an inconvenience. Uh, verse three continues. I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? Honey, I just got a pedicure. You can't expect me to jump up out of bed and open the door. Well, then it says in verse four, He's persistent. My beloved put his hand to the latch and my heart was thrilled within me. Um, just as a little aside, that, that is not that phrase, my heart was thrilled. That does not mean her heart is racing for intimacy. I know that's what it is perceived here, but in the Hebrew, the idea is more uh, like a condescending pity. She's feeling bad for him. So when it says my heart was, was thrilled for him or my heart yearns for him, um, it, a better way of translating that is that I took pity on him. In fact, same word is used elsewhere in scripture. I think we have it. CJ, let's put that uh, verse up. You have that? 
Yeah, Jeremiah 31, 20. Um, notice where it's used here elsewhere in the Old Testament. Is not Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight? Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. And here's the phrase. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him. So God has great compassion on his people, great, a great yearning and pity, that condescending, grace-filled love. So that's what she's having right here in this moment. She kind of feels bad that she locked the door. Um, she's kind of have that moment of remorse. And so notice what happens next. It says in verse 5, I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. A uh, lot of confusion about what this means. Um, essentially, what's happening here is it sounds like he knew what was going on, so he kind of decorated the door with myrrh, with frankincense. He kind of was was doing his part to kind of um, show intimacy and show uh, like initiation, and so he kind of decorated the door. So as she goes to open it, she realizes, oh, he has poured frankincense and myrrh all over the door. And so in verse 6, I open to my beloved. So finally she opens the door. But notice what happens. But my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. Here we have, in this perfect idealized relationship, their first fight. Now, I can remember my first fight with Jen. Uh, very first fight we had, uh, we had just gotten back from our honeymoon. And the honeymoon was officially over because of this fight. We came back to the house. We lived in a little bachelor pad kind of uh, apartment because uh, I was broke. And um, anyway, uh, we lived in this little apartment. And we, um, I remember I had gone to use the bathroom before bed. That happens a lot more now, using the bathroom throughout the night. Uh, I guess it's because we're in our 40s. But anyway, uh, kind of went to the bathroom, left the toilet seat up, okay, and, um, and just kind of didn't think about it. Came back to bed, went to sleep. Well, all of a sudden, I hear a splash and a scream <laughs> about 3 a.m. And, uh, and so she comes in, honey, you left the toilet seat up. You know, and I'm kind of like, huh? You know, I kind of wake up, and I kind of sit up, and I go, what's the big deal? Uh, and so we have officially our first full-blown fight. And so um, I'll tell you kind of how we resolve that or what the ideal way of resolving that um, would have been. Uh, but essentially, I was kind of like, well, what's the big deal? Now, obviously, I've never, that's never happened to me. I've never fallen into uh, the toilet. Um, and so I just kind of dismissed it. Like, whatever your problem is, is uh, you're making a big deal out of it. Just get over it, honey. And of course, she's thinking, how could you be so selfless, so heartless, you're not thinking about others, and so we have this, this full-blown full fight. I mean, it was, it was bad. I don't want to say rings came off and were thrown, and, uh, and I was kicked out of the house, and moms were called. I'm not going to say all that. That may have been what happened, but uh, it was bad. It was a bad fight. Um, and so uh, ultimately, if I would have had this sermon and this text and the text we're going to look at later, that would have been a lot more helpful than the route that I went. But... In our text today, we have a full-blown fight. And what happens is, in these arguments within any relationship, we tend to kind of have one of two responses, generally. Not all the time, but we generally have one of two responses. We have a graphic to show uh, one of two responses. Uh, and people have called this fight or flight. So you, in your friendships or in your marriage relationships, are typically one of these two dogs. You're either the dog on the left who wants to fight. So you're ready, like, bring it on. Let's go. I'm ready to do this. We're going to duke it out, and I'm going to get my point heard. You will hear me. 
and you will know everything that I want to say. And then the opposite person is the person who responds with flight. So they will flee. They'll just kind of check out. They'll leave. They'll drive away. They'll turn over in bed, and I don't want to talk about it. Uh, they'll, in a way, kind of disconnect. Uh, I don't know if there's a third option, uh, but that's typically it's either fight or flight. And we don't need to raise our hands in which one we are. You know who you are. If you don't, ask your husband or wife. They'll tell you who you are. Honey, you're a fighter. Um, and so uh, what happens here is that Shulamith fights. Shulamith fights this. I don't want to get up. I don't want to open the door. I'm not willing to do this. Well, we're going to see that she now fights for her marriage as she leaves the home. And Solomon's reaction is to be the person who flees. He's waiting at the door. Are we open the door or not? Okay, fine. And so he departs. And so even in this relationship, we see we're starting to get kind of this uh, reaction. And I think there's a better way. There's a better way for us to respond. Um, and we'll look at that in just a moment. But notice what she does. She continues to fight for her marriage by going and looking for him. Notice verse 7. The watchman found me. Now, a watchman was typically someone who stood guard over a city. You'd have a city wall protecting the city. You'd stand either on the wall or at the gate of the city. And you were responsible for sounding the alarm and protecting the city from external fighting. So if there were external threats to the city, as the watchman, you were the one who would sound the alarm. In fact, we're told throughout the Old Testament that if you were not a faithful watchman, in other words, you saw the enemy coming and you did nothing about it, then you would have the blood of those people in the city on your hands. If you did see the uh, uh, marauders approaching and you sounded the alarm and then the people said, no, nah, we're not taking you serious, then the blood is on their hands. And, and so I think it's interesting uh, that the threats that the watchmen are supposed to guard against were from the outside, the exterior threats. And yet for Shulamith and Solomon, there aren't necessarily external threats, right? So the, the biggest threats aren't necessarily outside of us, but they're within us. And so she goes to the watchmen uh, to basically ask, have you seen my husband? So notice verse 7, the watchmen found me as they went about in the city. But these were unfaithful watchmen. Notice that she says, they beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. Again, this is poetry, so this is hard to interpret. She might have literally been beaten up by these men. I think we'd see retribution if that were the case. Uh, I think it possibly is more figurative. Notice that they're taking away the dignity of her marriage by saying, they took away my veil, they beat me, bruised me. That could be a picture of them insulting her, mocking her, detracting from her marriage. Uh, I think it's interesting because it goes on in verse 8. She now turns to the women of the city. She's been speaking to them throughout this um, book, but now she adjures them. Instead of, hey, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, don't awaken love until it so desires. Notice what she says instead. I adjure you, if you find my beloved, you tell him I am sick with love. So this is different. She's saying, I'm lovesick. I love him. I miss him. I'm saddened that we've had this conflict, this rift, and I want to make it right. I'm willing to make it right. If you see him, will you tell him that I love him? Well, then we have an unexpected turn uh, in verse 9. And the others, instead of saying, well, yeah, of course, you guys have an amazing stellar marriage. We would love to help you. Notice what happens. They begin to question her. They say in verse 9, well, what is your beloved more than another beloved? Oh, most beautiful among women. That's kind of a backhanded compliment. Like, hey, you're one of the most beautiful women. Like, what is this guy to you? 
And then they say, what is your beloved more than another beloved that thus you adjure us? In other words, hey, we understand that you're coming to us asking for our help, but what makes your man so great? Why is he such an amazing husband that you're willing to go out and search for him and you're asking for our help? What makes him so awesome? Well, then you should have a heading above verse 10 that says the bride praises her husband. At this point, where a lot of us go in our marriage in the middle of a conflict, is that we will turn to someone, and maybe it's someone that we're seeking advice from or we just need to vent to, and oh my goodness, what happens? We begin to go off on all of the attributes that our husband or wife have done to mistreat us. So we go into detail. This is what they've done. This is who they are. And we, we kind of tear down their character. Maybe it's not a marriage. Maybe it's friendships. Oh, I can't believe so-and-so. They did this, this, and this. But I just want to draw your attention to the fact that her response to them is to praise her husband. So to publicly denounce him right, would be a breaking of her vow to be faithful to him. So instead of publicly denouncing him and and shaming him, she begins to call to memory the reasons why she got married to him in the first place. She calls to mind the things that she originally said, this is why I love him. You could say this is remembering her first love. So notice what she does in verse 10. My beloved is radiant and ruddy. Uh, another translation for ruddy is he's, he's like a, a ginger. He's kind of reddish. I don't know if that's the exact way of translating it, but he's radiant. He's distinguished among 10,000. He's one in 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. So his hair was, you know, black, jet black in, in the rain. It was wet, and she's just remembering how beautiful his hair is. Verse 12, his eyes are like doves beside streams of water. I don't know why in that century talking about each other's eyes like doves was so popular, but apparently they both like to compare each other's eyes like doves. And you'll see some of this is a callback to chapter four when he was describing her in the marriage bed. He was just calling her beautiful and had all these things to say. So she says, she returns the favor. Hey, his eyes are like doves bathed in milk sitting beside a full pool. Verse 13, his cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. They're pleasant. Uh, verse 14, she begins to describe, this is a little bit different. Remember, he was talking about how beautiful her gazelles were. Now she's describing how strong he is. He's chiseled. This guy works out. So notice, she says, his arms are rods of gold set with jewels. I, I like to look at scripture and go, Lord, do I embody this scripture? So as a man, I want to embody these verses, right? Awkward laughter. Uh, his body is polished ivory. Okay, obviously, yep, I didn't meet that mark. Uh, bedeckled with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns. They're, they're solid, set on bases of gold. But then she points out something familiar. Remember, she's from Lebanon. So notice what she's saying here. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. The cedars of Lebanon, very costly, very choice wood, but this is also home. So she's saying, when I think of him, I'm, f I'm thinking of home. He is familiar to me. Verse 16, his mouth is most sweet. He's altogether desirable. Remember, he had said, you are altogether lovely. Every aspect of you, there's nothing that is flawed, even though you feel flawed. Everything about you is lovely. And so she returns the favor publicly. She says, everything about him, he's altogether desirable. Now notice the end of verse 
uh, 16, the end of chapter 5. She summarizes her relationship with him by saying, as kind of a summary of their relationship, this is my beloved. He's my beloved. And this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. See, they've taken a turn in their relationship where at the beginning it was all about passion and idealism and everything's great and this person's beautiful or this person's handsome. Now they're turning the corner where they're saying, you know what? We belong to one another and we're friends. We're partners. And yes, the passion is still there, of course, but one day the passion's going to wane and wane and wane. But what's going to remain is that friendship. And so she is reminding her friends and herself that we, in this marriage relationship, truly belong to one another. Well, in chapter 6, verse 1, I love this. They kind of go, wow, he does sound great. Where is he? And so look at verse 1. <laughs> Where has your beloved gone? Oh, most beautiful among women. Yeah, this guy sounds great. We'd like to meet him as well. Uh, Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? So these are good friends. They support her. They're coming alongside her. And they want to assist them in this argument. They want to have reconciliation as friends. They're seeking true reconciliation in their marriage. Well, it seems like she either knew all along where he was. Like, yeah, I know where he is. He's at the office. I, I know that he left and he's on the golf course. I know he's, he's in the room. I know where he is. And so verse 2, my beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. Again, this refrain, this reminder, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. Just another reminder that I belong to him, that he belongs to me, that we together are going to work through this disagreement. Later on in chapter 8, we see her desire to go back home. And so there's a life change, a big shift in their marriage where they're going to move away and go somewhere else. And how do they navigate those big life changes like moving? Uh, and so we'll get to how they work through that. But here we have the first fight of the couple and how to work through conflict. So uh, I want to do this. I want to just jot down three um, kind of application points from this text. And then I want us to go to the New Testament and have some gospel implications from this. So uh, three, three points of application. Um, number one, if you're in conflict, that's okay. But we must be willing, number one, to compromise be willing to compromise. As they're digging in their heels, she's laying in bed. I'm not willing to get out of bed and lose comfort. And he's not willing to stick around. And so he pieces out. He walks away. We need to be willing to compromise and come to a place where we say, there's a greater glory than my opinion. There's a greater glory than my way. Some of us say it's my way or the highway. Well, that's not biblical, and that's not Christian. That's not gospel. There's a greater way, and Jesus says, I am the way. And so we must be willing to lay down our lives and be willing to compromise. Um, ultimately, that's not easy when you've got two sinners who are seeking their own way. And so you're going to constantly come to that place of wanting to fight and wanting the other person to quickly compromise. But we must both be willing in marriage to compromise. Now, some of you may be in a marriage relationship where you're with someone who's not willing to compromise. In fact, it's, it's uh, very clear in the New Testament that some of us marry unbelievers. And so if you're married to an unbeliever, you would be reminded in Scripture to uh, continue to submit your life to Jesus Christ. Continue to trust him. And as you submit your life to Christ, it should be that submission that is attractive to your husband. And you may win him over 
through your action, through your submission. Uh, but we must be willing to compromise. Number two, um, what we see Shulamith doing is consulting maybe the wrong help. So I would say number two, in a fight, in conflict, number two, consult the right help. So she turns to the watchmen who should be the right help. And what do they do? They abuse her, they mock her, they beat her. She turns to her friends, the daughters of Jerusalem. And there's not a strong case for this. I don't want to read between the lines. But essentially, they kind of say, oh, well, who is this guy? Why is he so great? Uh, I would just say this. No matter what, we must consult the right help when we're in the middle of a fight. Uh, I, and I know lots of wives who will turn to their single friends or to their unsafe friends to ask for counsel. They're getting their hair cut, and they let me talk to the barber. The barber probably has some conventional wisdom about this. They've been divorced six times, but I'm sure my barber will have some. No, we need to make sure we're consulting the right help. And I would just encourage you to three things uh, to consult the right help. Number one, as Christians, we must turn to the scriptures, right? So when you're in the middle of a fight, I'm not saying you go, honey, I got a verse for you. Here's the verse, right? I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that we should spend time meditating on the scriptures so that when we are in the middle of a fight, those verses bubble up to our memory. Like there's a proverb, Proverbs 15.1, I believe. A gentle answer turns away wrath. You know how many times that verse has gotten me out of a bad fight? And I don't just mean with my wife. A gentle answer turns away wrath. So I, someone comes at me and I'm ready. Like, oh, you're coming at me? Here we go. I'm ready to give them kind of like, you know, the, the wrath of God uh, back to them. Like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian. I love the grace of Jesus, but he also has wrath. So you're going to feel the, the wine press of the wrath of Pilgrim. Here we go. I'm ready to do that. And yet the scripture says a gentle answer turns away that person's wrath. And so, okay, I'm going to answer you gently. So we must turn to the scriptures as um, our, our counsel. We're, we're told in Ephesians 4 to be kind and compassionate to one another. That's a, that's a church verse for the Christian. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So I realize I, the only reason I can extend forgiveness is not because that person has earned it by being contrite, but they don't deserve it. In fact, they, they died and never asked for forgiveness. But I can forgive them because in God, God in Christ, I've been forgiven. And so we turn to the scriptures as our counsel. Secondly, though, I would encourage us to turn to the power and help of the Holy Spirit. So often I find myself, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm the only one, I find myself in the flesh. And I want to say the right snarky response to kind of get, get like a, mm, a zinger. Like, oh, okay, boom, here's a little pride-filled, fleshy response. I know I'm the only one. You guys don't do that. But uh, instead to say, oh, Lord. And I would just argue that men, as the high priest of the home, this is on us. I want to put the ball in your court as the man, as the husband, that we would be the ones to say, you know what? I'm not going to wait for my wife to initiate. I'm going to initiate as the high priest of the home that my job is to lead us in reconciliation, lead us in restoration. I should set the tone and the example. So I, in the middle of this fight, I'm going to stop and not dramatically get on your knees right then. Uh, but maybe internally, Lord, I turn to you right now. Help me by your Holy Spirit to be humble. Help me to have a gentle answer right now. Help me to lead my family. I'm, I'm blowing it, Lord. Forgive me. That we would be those men who are the high priests of our home. 
so we consult the Holy Spirit's help. But thirdly, we consult the help of other godly believers. Don't turn to your single unsafe friends. Turn to other godly marriages. There may be some next level help you need. Like we need to go to a couple, maybe it's the pastors and their wives, and we just need, we need some next level uh, counseling. Uh, I certainly would encourage you to go and seek counsel. So we got to turn to the right counsel. But thirdly, I think it's important as we apply this text uh, that we resolve to resolve. Shulamith could have laid in bed and pouted. She could have just said, you know, I can't believe he would do such a thing. I'm going to keep the door locked, see how long it'll be before he comes knocking again. But instead, she goes to pursue him. Um, She seeks out and is willing at the end of this to say, you know, I'm resolved that I'm my beloved and my beloved is mine. If I can be transparent enough, and I always get in trouble because I'm supposed to ask my family permission to share these things. But there is one occasion that the D word, we say the D word, that the D word in our marriage was brought out. It was early on. It was in that same apartment. I think I left the toilet seat up again. Um, And... And in a, in a, a flash of anger, uh, Jen pulled that out. She pulled the D word out. And I got to tell you, that just saying it, uh, like, kind of shook both of us up. We both stopped. We both started weeping. We both embraced. And we said, Lord, this marriage cannot be built on our, you know, our strength. We just lay it down at this point. And we know, apart from you, you your scriptures tell us, you tell us we can do nothing. So we just want to abide in you. And at that moment, early on in our marriage, we just said, we're never going to say that word again. We're going to resolve to resolve. No matter what's going to come our way, we're going to say, I am my beloved, my beloved is mine. And when we think about what we're upset about, instead we're going to call to mind those things, as she does here about Solomon, those things uh, that she loves about him. And so for us, as we look into the New Testament, we see Jesus reminding the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 to return to your first love, to repent. Do the things you did at first. I would just say if you're in a marriage where you're constantly fighting, that's okay. The question is, are you willing to work through and resolve? So uh, we'll see a little bit more at how they work through um, and kind of recapture romance next week. But will you guys turn with me to Philippians chapter 2? Philippians chapter 2. I just want to give us a little more um, gospel-anchored hope if you are fighting. Again, a healthy marriage is not the absence of conflict. A healthy, successful life is not the absence of conflict. That's not even life. A healthy marriage is the endurance through conflict. And so, Philippians chapter 2, Paul's writing uh, to the church at Philippi, and there were a lot of disagreements. I mean, this church came together with a variety of different people. You have a Philippian jailer uh, who's maybe more of the uh, maybe police force. You've got a young girl who has been um, radically saved. Um, she used to be a slave. And so you've got like this, this crazy backstory Uh, where she was in chains. Now she's in a church with a guy who used to put people in chains. Uh, You've got a variety of women in this church uh, from a variety of different uh, different backgrounds. Uh, The the one who was kind of helping fund this ministry was a very wealthy woman. And then you have this this poor slave girl. So you've got all these different socioeconomic backgrounds. You would have thought that the church in Philippi would be uh, a, a melting pot of arguments. And for the most part, it was not. There was 
gospel unity. But there were two women within the church that began to fight. They began to have this conflict. And later on in chapter 4, canonized in all of human history in the church, we have the name of these two women. So we'll get to meet them in heaven and say, ha you made it in the Bible. Your little argument made it in the Bible. Uh, yet, earlier in Philippians, Paul says in chapter 2, a wonderful, gospel-anchored way to work through conflict. And so I just want to read these verses. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, and the, a better way of reading this is since, instead of if, since you have encouragement in Christ, since you have comfort from love, since you participate in the Spirit, since there's affection and sympathy, he says in verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So note with me here, he, he's saying you, you have your own way, but my prayer for you is because you have the unity of the Spirit, because you're one in Christ, and again, this is not necessarily marriage, but in any relationship, you should seek to be of one mind. And then he goes in to explain what that mind looks like. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So that would be lay my priorities and my opinions down. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. If we in the church embodied Philippians 2.3, I think that we would never see church splits happen again. They may happen over theology, and that's not a bad thing. Uh, but these little disagreements and these little backbiting arguments would go away. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. We didn't say this in first service. We, Pastor Mike and I are humbled by uh, the appreciation, but we are not sitting on top of a church pyramid scheme where we are the, the main guys and the main leaders and everyone is under us. I hope you know that the way we look at it is a, can't do it, an inverted pyramid. That, that we hopefully are the lead servants. That we are at the bottom of the pyramid lifting you up in prayer and we count everyone here better than ourselves. So if we should have had a, a, an appreciation month, we should have had single mom appreciation month. We should have had a wife of an unbeliever. Appreciation Month. We should have had those who have served in ministry for decades and are faithful to their spouse, Appreciation Month. But you get what I'm saying. We should look at others more significant than ourselves. Well, then he says in verse 4, let each of you, so this is my responsibility, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now he could stop there and that could sound a little moralistic. Go out and go and be more thoughtful than the next Christian. But notice what it's rooted in. He said, you're supposed to have the same mind. Here's that same mind, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This, because you're in Christ, this is the mind of Christ. He says, who, verse 6, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So if anyone deserved to be worshipped, deserved to have the highest place, and to exert his authority and his way, it was Christ. And yet, he came as a servant. Verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of the gospel, we hear this. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, 
Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Just want to encourage us today as we close. We're going to sing the song and have a time of communion, so I want to invite the worship team up. We just want to encourage us today that conflict does not mean that you are in an unhealthy marriage. That conflict is something that we work through, and we can work through it by having the mind of Christ. And so, as we close this morning, I look at the bridegroom coming to the door, and he's knocking on the door to a sleepy bride. And I wonder if there are parallels for our community, for our culture today, that today the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, stands at the door, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. He stands at the door and he knocks. And he says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. He desires a meal with us, intimacy, a relationship with his people. And yet today, many of us, as the bride of Christ, are a sleepy and comfort-laden bride. My prayer this morning is that we would have our affections spiritually stirred for the person of Christ. That we this morning would say, yes, Lord, I open the door. And I thank you for desiring intimacy with me. Lord, I I repent of my sin and I realize as I come to the table, I'm not perfect, but I'm not here in my own moralistic goodness. I'm here partaking of the bread and the cup, realizing that it's your finished work alone that allows me to be called your bride. And so this morning, let us just be reminded of the finished work of Christ on our behalf. And let us remember that Jesus was cut off from the Father in order to have union with his bride. And so you and I this morning uh, can celebrate that amazing grace. Amen. Let's bow our heads together. And as this song plays, we're going to distribute the elements. Uh, In just a few minutes, some men will come and we'll um, distribute these elements. Hold on to the cup. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, we just ask that you let the uh, tray kind of pass by you uh, and not partake of it. But if you are a Christian, just hold on to it. Uh, And we'll partake it after we sing. Pastor Micah will lead us in a time. But let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your kindness to us in Christ. We acknowledge today uh, that you came from heaven to earth and bore our sin in your body on the tree. Thank you for dying in our place. Lord, we know that it's not our fervency of faith or our moralistic goodness that saves. But Lord, it's the finished work of Jesus. So Lord, we celebrate today. Uh, the table of the Lord. And we come with brokenness and with humility and with gratitude. So we thank you, Lord, for what you've done. And Lord, I pray for any marriages today that are are struggling, that are um, suffering, that are going through um, conflict. Lord, would you allow us to embody the mind of Christ, that the gospel would be alive in us and that we'd seek reconciliation in your glory. We love you, Lord, and we commit this time of communion and this time of worship to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.